Zeal is one of two sources. One is knowledge. You're passionate about something because you know it's true. You see something and you, you, you feel it's true. Right? So zeal comes about because of something you know that's true. Or zeal comes about because of ignorance. That is, you think something's true. You really think it's true, but you're wrong. And so in your zeal without knowledge, you become what, what Luther called zeal without knowledge, fire without light. You imagine that, fire that's just shadow. That's zeal without knowledge. Uh, he also said that, that knowledge without zeal is a bit like light without fire. Now, if you want to read at night, light without fire is not a bad idea, actually. However, his point was that a cold light doesn't do you much good in the big picture. The value of the sun is that the light brings warmth and that that warmth is for the good of the earth. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, nicknamed sons of thunder, I think get that nickname from Jesus, not because Zebedee is a zealous, loud guy, but because James and John are zealous, loud guys. They're lumped right in there with St. Peter. St. Peter will, of course, talk more than they do, but you got the same kind of idea, is that they're putting themselves forward as those who are following Christ by saying things to Christ and from Christ, things which then get recorded in the scriptures. And remember again then, James and Peter and John as a group of three are often at key places in the story. So for example, these are the three guys that go up onto the mountain of transfiguration. And these are the three guys who sleep in the garden of Gethsemane while they're asked to pray over those three different times. But you also see the sons of thunder at work, I think most in the time when they are supposed to go by a city, they would like to go in. And by city, I mean like a walled town they're kind of walking through the countryside past something smaller than Pecatonica, and they want to get lunch, and the town doesn't want to let them in. And they know who Jesus is. They, they don't want to let him and his crowds in. And so James and John, they go to Jesus and they say, well, Jesus, that was rude. Do you think then, since you've given us power to tread on serpents and scorpions and to cast out demons and to heal diseases like the prophets of old, well, do you think... John and I, James and I, whichever one's talking, uh, can go and cast down some fire on that town and burn it to shreds and just wipe it off the face of the earth. What do you say, Jesus? I, I, you see their zeal. It's actually a good thing, this zeal, and yet it's also based on ignorance. So it's not so good at that point. We're gonna, we got that again then, a bit of their ignorant zeal in the text from the gospel today, from Mark where you see James and John, and then I believe in Luke, they get their mom involved. I mean, that's cheating. That's like dirty pool. Get mom to ask Jesus so you don't have to. Anyway, they all go and they try to like triangle to strong arm Jesus into, hey man, do whatever we ask you. Can you imagine the gall of this question? And I don't know, I honestly don't know whether Jesus is, is angry or finds it funny. I, I can read the line both ways. What do you want me to do for you? Riley, like, eh, what you getting at, guys? I, I think you're going to be off, but I'm just guessing right now, you know? Or or is it like, what do you want me to do for you? 
Like, haven't I done enough? Like, are you, are you, you really want this now? And you get that in his response. You do not know what you are asking for. Right? So, so what's their request? They come up to him. Can we sit at your right hand and at your left hand when you come into your kingdom? In their minds, what this means is when he sets up his throne in Jerusalem, can they sit at the right hand and at the left with all the other apostles at like the next right and the next left? Think wedding party, best man and, and maid of honor positions, right? You're going to put us right there and everybody else can be to the sides. All the other apostles, they can be there. Just give these two to us. Huh? He tells them, you don't know what you're asking. You have no idea what you just said. Can you sit at my right and my left in my kingdom? You think you imagine what my kingdom is going to be, but you don't actually know. He says that straight up. And then he asks them this question, right? Verse 38, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? The English is definitely clunky there. Uh, but don't miss how you have the Lord's Supper and baptism kind of right there. He's talking about drinking a cup, and he's talking about washing people with water. I mean, these are the two main instituted marks of the church that we see throughout history. And by marks of the church, I mean, even if you don't believe baptism and the Lord's Supper do anything, and you're a Christian, you still have them. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> that is still the mark that Jesus left behind for us to show us that we're Christians. Here, do I think he's talking about baptism and the supper specifically? No, I actually don't think he is. But nonetheless, don't miss that the highlight point here is that you got water and you got a cup, a cup of something. Now, the real point, though, is that this water, this washing and this cup in everything up to this point in the Bible doesn't mean salvation. It doesn't mean grace. It means fire and wrath. He said as much about his baptism. He'll say at one point, I have a baptism to undergo. I'm quoting directly. I'm not paraphrasing. I have a baptism to undergo and how I am vexed until it is accomplished. He's bothered by it. He wants it to be over with. Why? Why does St. John the Baptist say that when he comes, he will baptize you with fire? It's because the baptism that Jesus stands in in the water under John is actually preparation for the crucifixion. The crucifixion is the washing that man needed, the circumcising of man's entire body, all of our humanity in this one man given over to death. That baptism is baptism, right? Which is why when he says, now go and wash people with water in my name, as we heard last week in Romans chapter six, this buries you in Christ's death. It's because Christ's death is the real baptism. It's the only one that there ever will be. He goes into the grave. He comes out. All who are washed with that baptism are saved. Where's that baptism? Go into all nations. Name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. It, it's very, very reasonable. I, I do got to say that. That said, John and James do not understand this. They're not asking for washing with water. They're asking to sit beside him. And he's saying, that means you're going to get killed beside me. The cup of wrath just as much a thing, drinking the cup in the Old Testament or God pouring out the cup down to the dregs of wine is generally and always about his punishment on the nations for their sin against Israel. 
that he manages to turn the cup of wrath into the cup of blessing and the New Testament in his blood shows you the power of Passover, right? What it means to have a God who would rather save than hold you accountable. All this to be said, he says to James and John, you don't know what you're asking for, right? Can you be killed beside me? They say, yes, we can. They still don't know what he's talking about. They haven't picked up on it. They say, yes, we can. And yet their conviction here, don't miss that the zeal, though ignorant, is still good. These are good things. They're saying, yeah, Jesus, what do you need? Oh, you need that, Jesus? Okay, we'll do that, Jesus. Oh, you need that? Okay, Jesus, we'll do that. Let me suggest we could use a little more of that sort of just eager zeal with regard to what Jesus says in the Bible. Just a touch of it, right? It's not all bad. And so he does. He says to them, you are going to drink the cup. You are going to be baptized with this baptism. And what are we doing this for today? Because James is going to be struck down with the sword well before his time. If by his time, we mean a nice long life. When everyone else is being driven from Jerusalem by Saul, he stays. With the other James and the other James and John and Peter, they continue to preach in this dangerous place. We'll, we'll come back to that in just a moment there. Uh, but, but they stay because for them, it is worth dying. And James will die. John will end up leaving Jerusalem, exiled from his homeland. He settles in Ephesus. He'll end up exiled from there too. He'll have to go to this island rock prison called Patmos for a while. Uh, his ending is normally held not to be by violent martyrdom, but he certainly dies as the last witness, the last living apostle. So he says, you are going to have this happen to you. However, to die beside me, that's not given for me even to say. Uh, now think about this here. You got the people who actually die beside Jesus. When he's wearing his crown, he's in his kingdom. The sign says, King of the Jews, right above his head, right? He's, he's been brought to the kingdom by iron even. huh? Uh, and beside him on his right and on his left are two thieves who are also being crucified. Now, I don't know if you've ever picked up on the fact that as the story goes, at one point, both of these thieves are mocking Jesus. One of the gospel writers says they both just hated him. Then you have, I believe it's in John, where he talks about how one of them repents and asks Jesus to remember him in his kingdom. He says, truly, I say to you, you'll be with me today in paradise. So you have this guy who then believes. So, of course, an atheist has come along and say, look at those stupid Christians. They don't even know their Bible disagrees. One says they both die. One says one believes and lives. So, uh, stupid Christians. Or, <laughs> or the day started with both of them scoffing. By the time that the sun had turned to darkness and the wind had howled and the earth was shaking and all this stuff, and Jesus is just saying, forgive them and quoting the Psalms left and right, one of them actually repents. And he prays to Jesus, forgive me, like in that moment. And what does Jesus do? Hanging on the cross. What power does he have? All power. And he uses the greatest power, which is not to lift his hands and his head, but his voice to announce that indeed the man would be forgiven. Now, now just think about James and John's question. If they're dying beside Jesus, where's that guy? He's not by Jesus that day. He's dying by himself without Jesus. Now, this is why what Jesus says to the apostles next about how to use authority is so important. It's not about how 
if you use authority wrong, that somehow you're bad and you should be punished and feel bad and have guilt and Jesus will hate you. That kind of thinking just squelches our energy, just destroys our hearts. The bigger idea is to see that what we want may or may not be what God wants to give, but what God wants to give is always going to be good for all of us. It will be better for all of us than whatever we thought we were going to do. And in this particular case, James and John and all their zeal wanting to die with Jesus, if they had on that day, would have been in the way of his plan to save that thief. And so their arrogance to stand in that place was put down. Said, no, you'll have your own place. So learn the real lesson, though. What happens next? The other 10, what do they think of these two guys and their zeal? How did their zeal and their love for Jesus make the other Christians feel? Made them feel horrible. Why? Because you asked for prideful things with your prayers. That's what they were doing. Jesus says instead, authority when you have it, if you have it, is always for the good of all, always for those who are under you. Now, this is something in other places I have called the Pendragon Principle. You can just think of it as the fourth commandment, okay? This is the idea that wherever there is human relationships, you're going to inevitably have in that pile one person who will come out on top as the loudest voice. This can be done by wisdom or by just rude behavior. kind of depends on what everyone else is willing to put up with. But that loudest voice is sort of a head. They're, they're the lead. They're a shepherd for that pile of people. Two, three, 15, doesn't matter. Now within the family, the unit, as God created it, the father most naturally just takes this role. And usually when you have a group of people that come together in a village, you have the men will talk and among them, a couple will be the most loud and then one of them will finally be sort of a leader. You can call him king, you can call him mayor, you can call him father, you can call him whatever, you know, Bob, it doesn't matter. The point is, there's always a voice that leads the group. There's always an authority that is given for the group. And the Christian insight is that the one who realizes, oh, they're all listening to me, they want to see that it's not for themselves, but it's for them. So again, go back to the family, the father who sees that the infant is there and he has full power over the infant, sees it so that the infant won't die. The infant without the father having full authority over him and mother too, of course, without that, the infant's going to die. So God gives total control. You want the infant to move? You move the infant. You want the infant to like go over there and do this and be, you do it, full power. Why? For the good of the infant. Not so you can dress them how you want, sit back, take pictures and say, aren't we swell? I mean, you can do that too. It's kind of fun. But, but that's not why. That's not why. Why is for the one under. And so you can take this and you can apply this to every relationship you have in life. Just ask the question, am I here in this group right now to follow? Well, then I want to be under the authority and listen for the good words to follow. Huh? Am I here to lead? Well, then I want to have my words align with the good words of Scripture so that I always lead with what God has truly said. And this, again, will change depending on where you are. We sometimes call this vocation, you know, to understand who you're talking to and why. Jesus says, whenever you're in authority, remember it's not for you. It's not for you. If it's about you, you might knock someone out of the way who Jesus has his eye on. Yeah? Now, the good news, the real good news, is you can't actually do that. 
You cannot knock the elect out of salvation. Let's come back to that at Romans 8. But first, a pit stop here in the Acts text. We won't spend a ton of time on it. Uh, but in the Acts text, we hear about James, the elder, brother of John, Zebedee, son of thunder, the guy we we're just talking about, getting put to death by the sword. I want to do two things. I want to put that in the larger story context so you can just kind of see how the whole church is moving through the book of Acts. And I also want to make sure you know about the three most important Jameses in your English Bible. Now, if you go back into other languages, there's more because James is just the Hebrew word Jacob, the name Jacob. So Jacob, Israel of old, you could call him James, or you could call the book of James the book of Jacob which is what it's called in Greek. But New Testament, you know, we tend to say James. This comes out of King James and things. Uh, but there are three of these Jameses then in the New Testament that you really want to know who they are. Uh, first is, we're going to start uh, with the, the smallest and, and uh, in that way easiest, is James, son of Alphaeus. This is not the guy we're thinking about today. This is James the Lesser, called the Lesser just because we don't know as much about him. As a lesser, I mean, he's one of the 12 apostles. This means Jesus hand-selected him, gave him power to cast out demons, heal diseases, preach the gospel to the Jews, sent him out to do so, had all of these things take place. He came back, watches Jesus die, sees the resurrection, is cloaked with power from on high on the day of Pentecost, speaks in tongues, and eventually dies a martyr's death. We just don't really actually know any of that from the Bible, the, that latter part, the martyr's death part. Everything else, though, he was there. He was as in it as anybody is. That's James, son of Alphaeus, apostle. But again, that's about all we know about him. Just James, son of Alphaeus. Then add to James, son of Alphaeus, you have James, son of Zebedee, James the Greater, James the brother of John. And he's this gentleman. We're going to talk about his story more again and how he dies. Then you have the third James that you don't want to forget. So James, son of Alphaeus, James, son of Zebedee, and James, brother of Jesus, probably son of Joseph, yeah? possibly son of Mary. Depends on who you're arguing with. <laughs> uh, but he's the one who writes the book of James. He's the one who, after this James is killed and Peter is imprisoned, in Acts chapter 15, we have the Jerusalem Council. James, the brother of Jesus, will be the one who speaks at the end to summarize everything, implying that he will be kind of the leader at that point and from that point on. He also will be martyred in Jerusalem. And I told that story a couple times already, wherein he has remained in Jerusalem after everybody else has left. Everyone knows because Christ foretold it that the temple is going to be destroyed by Rome. So as persecution buckles down more and more, that is as the Jews in the temple refuse to let Christians really exist in the city at all, James remains after the other apostles leave, largely because he's keeping all the rules in just the right way. That is, he can come and go in the temple still and nobody can accuse him of anything. That is, the Pharisees have to say, yeah, that's James the just. That's the name they give him. However, they also know he's still talking to people about Jesus, and they don't like that. And so they set up a time to try to trick him, to kind of capture him in his words, just like they did with Christ. And he's speaking to a crowd from part of the temple where he's up over them on a wall. And what happens is, instead of slipping up enough for the questioning and the conversation to get the crowd angry, the crowd gets excited. 
people in the crowd begin to enjoy what he's talking about. He is risen. Hallelujah. Somebody says they believe it out in the crowds. And someone in the Pharisee says, hey, you guard, push him. They push him. He falls off the, off the wall. It's, uh, multiple feet, more than 10 feet down, hits his head. He's not done. He starts praying. Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do. They start throwing stones at him. He's still alive. They come over with a bat. Not really a bat. Big club. You imagine a baseball bat into the forehead. Poof, he's finally dead. Uh, all in front of this crowd. All after he waited there rather than flee for his life knowing this would probably happen, also that he could continue preaching one more time. Yeah. Also, he could say, somebody testify. Amen. Amen. Yeah. So then, that's James, son of Zebedee. I'm sorry, that's James. Sorry, I'm wrong. That's James the just. James, son of Zebedee, doesn't get that far, right? That story of uh, being pushed off and hit by the bat, that's much later. It's after the book of Acts is over. James, son of Alphaeus, don't know as much about James, son of Zebedee, his story is just squished right in here in Acts chapter 10. What's happened recently is that the first Christian martyr has happened. That's Stephen. Uh, this is a guy who was set up to help the apostles. Think kind of the early attempt at pastors. Whatever pastors end up being, we're not apostles. We're not lay people quite. Deacons were kind of the first shot at it. And of course, Stephen gets killed uh, and says these beautiful words, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do as he dies as well. But then uh, Saul of Tarsus, who's part of that murder scenario, he begins persecuting the church and a lot of people flee. Saul, you know, eventually will leave chasing the people who have fled, attempting to put them to death and has this conversion event wherein the resurrected Christ appears to him. Years go by and all this stuff where he goes to Arabia, he's working with Barnabas up in Antioch and all of this. But they eventually go back down to Jerusalem where he's no longer leading persecution. But again, persecution is there. It's kind of up and down. He goes back because of this prophecy about a famine that's coming on the land, which Luke points out under the reign of Claudius Caesar, this famine did take place. This will lead to other parts of scripture that talk about a, an offering being given from the Greek churches to the Judean churches and all this. Now, the history there is interesting, but not as important today. It is important, though, that because of the famine, this gets Paul sent back down to Jerusalem. And right around this time, as they're coming back to Jerusalem, this is when Herod, the one who put Jesus on trial, not the one who killed the babies, that's a different one from further back, the one who put Jesus on trial, in order to try to please the Jews, you know, the people that he's kind of ruling over to the side, he goes ahead and has this guy James killed with the sword. Why would he do that? Why James? I think this is very important because of the zeal of James. Remember that the person who has spoken up the most in the Gospels is St. Peter. Yeah? And St. Peter, after James is killed, is going to be put into prison which tells you that Peter and James are the two loudest voices in Jerusalem. And the reason why Herod has James killed is because he is indeed preaching loudly and boldly like unto a son of thunder would. But okay, so he dies. It's a martyr's death. It's glorious. All of us want to pray for a death in the faith. That is, that when I die, I still believe in Jesus. And in this way, James is someone to, to want to be like. You don't have to want to die by the sword but you do want to die confessing Christ. After this happens, 
Peter then is also arrested. Herod sees this is making my political people happy. We'll arrest Peter. He gets put into prison. It says during the days of unleavened bread. That means there's a lot of people in the city for Passover, just like when Jesus died. The city swells to like two or three times its normal size. And you're probably not generally going to be killing people during Passover, even though (laughs) there's a precedent, right? But notice, at the same time that Jesus is betrayed and murdered and put in the tomb, his preacher, main preacher of the book of Acts so far, Peter, he is also betrayed and put into a pit. And then, as comes the next morning, Sunday morning, what will they find? They'll find an empty pit, an empty tomb. So Peter will not rise from the dead, but he will be released from prison by angels. And and to this day, I I cannot complain about uh, being a young child dancing in the living room to an old LP of Amy Grant, Angels Watching Over Me. It told me this story as much as any did, that wherever I go, God's holy heaven is with me in Jesus Christ. And so just as Peter sat there in the darkness, not knowing what would come next, God sent him an answer an answer which freed him and allowed him to walk with his head lifted high, even to the point where he goes home to see everybody and nobody will believe it. Remember that part? He he knocks on the door and the girl opens it and then shuts it again. She's like, Peter's here. (laughs) She's so surprised. The good news of this, that he was unleashed from the grave, as it were, in order to keep preaching. But don't miss this. Does Peter actually get saved from martyrdom? The answer is no. He's saved for martyrdom later. So Peter gets let out in the next story by the angels. Soon we have the Jerusalem council and the book of Acts moves from Peter the preacher to Paul the preacher. That's that big story. But before we we go on, I really want to use the remainder of our time this morning. I want to take all of this and see if we can kind of get why Romans chapter 8 is what everything is happening on top of. I don't mean that it's not on Jesus. It is. It's all on Jesus. And Romans chapter 8 is a place where you can can see it just engraven and emblazoned that you're not swimming through water or, or climbing a ladder trying to find God. You are standing upon a ship in which a lifesaver has been thrown around you and you've been yanked out of the water and made to stand on the ship. Now, you still might be wet. You still might think the waves are dangerous. You still might see the storm blowing and think the pilot's asleep in the bow. All that can still happen. But it all happens on the ship. (laughs) You're standing on grace. And Romans chapter 8 is going to emphasize that with all the glory of heaven. Now, Romans 6, Baptist, Romans 8, Catholic, I like to say. That is, Romans 8 begins, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Romans 8, 33, key verse, it is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. Who can stand against you? That's the question. That's really what Paul wants you to ask today and every day. Who Did my mic just turn on? I'm preaching without a mic this whole time. Golly, God bless you all for listening. Who can stand against you? And the answer is no one because God is standing behind you. Yeah? 
We know that for those who love God, all things work for good according to his purpose. That's Romans 8, 28. We're going to go verse by verse here. Romans 8, 28. Do you love God? The answer is yes. Don't ask that question. If you're a Christian, you love God. This isn't here for you to try to work up a bunch of emotion in your heart. This is here for you to ask yourself, am I in Jesus? And if you want to be in Jesus, you're in Jesus. He's got no rules about how you got to stay out if you don't want to, you know, you got to try harder. So we know that for all who are Christians, all things, it says, work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The calling we're going to talk about here in a moment. For the moment, they'll assume you are called. You are called according to Christ's purpose. That means that nothing in your life from what's come before to what will come after is actually in your way ever. Ever. You only need to see what your way is. Because if you think your way is to have everything you want go your way, well, then actually you're going to have a lot of trouble in this life. I'm about to give up on this mic. You have a lot of trouble in this life. We're going to do it. Here it goes. I can almost get it out. There you go. We bought new packs, and the packs are really nice, but the headsets are not as nice as the ones we had. So we'll get that fixed at some point. Hopefully you can still hear me. All things work for good. God had a reason. Even this, right? I mean, it's like, why God? Why? I'm trying to preach your word. You know, what, what are you thinking? Why won't you let it work? Right? I mean, you know how that is. You have, Somebody testify? You have that in your life? Amen? Yeah. Okay. So in those moments is precisely when you have the, the, the option as a Christian to discipline your life with faith. Okay? The faith is promised. It's a free gift. Discipline, you use your faith. Huh? So that means you come to a moment like the one we just had where you know, it didn't work the way you wanted. And you have an option. You can believe that because you didn't like it, it's bad. Or you can believe that because God gave it to you, it's good. And it's your job to figure out how. To see where the good is in it. Uh, The place where I have built this into my life is in spilled coffee. You've probably heard me talk about this before. I drink coffee every morning. It's one of my most valued things. I love my little cup. I sit there. I was so good. And then I want to take it with me somewhere. Even if I don't, I spill it. But, you know, I want to take it with me somewhere. And when I do, inevitably, somehow something happens. Yesterday, again, I was so careful. I had my bag in my hand. It was all the way into the car. I'm kind of coming down. I'm really careful. And, uh, but the cup handle was sticking out just enough that it popped the side of the steering wheel. Yeah. And I mean, I was good too. I was like, whoa. And I got up and I was like trying to catch the balance outside the door so it wouldn't fall in the car. And there goes one drop, bam. And the one drops the problem. I mean, maybe on your cups, it's not the case, but if I get one drop on the bottom of my cup, it goes all the way around the bottom as a ring. When you set it down and you got a ring, as soon as you put it down, I don't want to do that in my car. Oh my goodness, Lord Jesus, why am I spilling coffee? I'm on my way to do good things for you. Well, Jonathan, I want you to remember that all things work for good. Well, Jesus, how can me spilling coffee work for good? Well, Jonathan, it just served to remind you that all things work for good. I'm not kidding. Try that one. Find that place in your life. It will remind you that Jesus is with you. That's the whole point. Every time 
that something bad happens, remember Jesus is with you and it's been better than something bad. <laughs> you know that that's how it's going to be. And even then from that, you will begin to see opportunities you didn't see before because you're done trying to make your idols stay up. You know, when you try to keep your idols up, they tend to fall on top of you. <laughs> yeah, so get out of the way. Let the idol fall down and see what's there instead. You're going to find a Christ and a word filled with rest, you know, hope, all these things. Because it's all working for you. For his purpose, according to the call. Now this language in verse 29 is going to expound on what it means to be called. Remember, in Greek, the root of the word church is call. Ecclesia, to call out. Okay, So in one sense, this is for all those who are churched according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called, that is, churched. Those whom he churched, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. You got a whole bunch of 50 cent words in there, right? So let's pull those apart. You got you got foreknowledge, you got predestination, you got the church and calling word, you got justification, and you got glorification, and you got the word conformed. It's a lot there. And believe it or not, you can completely get in a fight with other Lutherans and split Lutheranism over just the words foreknowledge and predestination. It's happened at least twice before in the history of Lutheranism, uh, the old Iowa Synod and the LCMS who didn't get along over this one. The LCMS retained what the Book of Concord teaches, which is that God does not elect you in foresight of how you would have chosen to believe, thus having foreknowledge be about your work to save yourself. Can you see how convoluted that got? Yeah. Um, but instead, we know that both foreknowledge and predestination are strictly matters of God's grace. That is, God knows what's going to happen, God destines what's going to happen, and then God even elects you. Let's take that knowledge or that language of election and run it through American politics for a moment, okay? In America, how do elections work? You go to some place called a tolling, tolling center, yeah, booth, whatever. You get a piece of paper and you get to elect somebody, kind of, right? Because it's like you and hundreds of thousands or you and millions of people. And all together, you put in your vote. And together, you get to elect somebody who may not be who you elect, right? But the election happens. So that's not how God's election works. It's all the other way around. There's not two candidates. There's one judge. And this one judge is electing to save people who do not deserve it. He is choosing people who do not deserve to be innocent and saying, you're innocent now. Now, that's a completely different thing than American elections, right? One guy says to the bunch, I choose you. I elect you. Again, I predestine you. For what? Resurrection? For death to not contain you? For you to be more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ who loved you, that's the predestination. To walk as those who are of the light, not of darkness. To wake up from your slumber and not be as those asleep. Yeah, that's, that's the election. That's the election. All right, so the election then is into, or the predestination is into, justification. That just means, again, you're innocent. You're good. You're righteous. Uh, in yourself? No. In Jesus? Yes. Do you have to do good works? Why would you ask that question? Do you want to do bad ones? 
Like, like, don't you want to be good? Well, then rejoice. Christ has justified you into glory. Now, glorification. Notice how the word sanctification is missing. That's because glorification is a better word. Uh, Sanctification means growth in the faith. Usually for a lot of people, I don't like to use the word that way. But glorification is what it really is getting at. Struck me a couple of weeks ago. We had a text go by uh, where, where Jesus, I forget what's going on right before it, but he looks up to heaven and he says, Father, what shall I say? Save me from this hour? And then he says, no. No. Before he, I tell you what he says next, I mean, think about it. Father, what shall I pray? For salvation? No, he says, don't pray for salvation. Now, that's amazing. He knew he didn't need it. And I think you have the freedom to know you don't need it anymore either. To pray for glorification rather than for salvation. Now, he, where is he? He's, he's come to the point of death, right? He, he's in Holy Week. He knows he's going to get killed. What shall I say? Father, save me from the cross. No, rather glorify your name. That is thy will be done, right? Do whatever your name needs to do to show how you are with me, not against me. And of course, that's the very thing, right? How did he who spare, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Hmm? So that why would Christ want to be saved from glory? But then glory for Christ meant being crucified. And that's where, for us, we have to know that our glorification in the present, our being called into a life of justified living, doesn't necessarily mean the glory of this age, but it does mean the glory of walking with Jesus in the mortification of our flesh, the putting to death of our sin, uh, the finding of in our heart where we hate, and the submitting of it to the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. In the full confidence that even though we're on that boat, right? And we're on, the, oh, I found hate in my heart again. We're still on the boat. It didn't jump off. Get up. There's other people here. Let's clean the deck together. Let's start again, right? The beauty of that certainty, that predestination, uh, that you and us together will be here until Jesus comes back. That Christianity doesn't get swept away by the time and the, and the tides of history, no matter what they say. Paul's so excited about this. What can we say to these things? What he means is you can't say more. You can only just believe the certainty of it and and rejoice in that. But the language, of course, has become very famous because it's so beautiful. I just read the part about how he gave up his son for us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's verse 33. It is God who justifies. And so again, when the king decides to place his sword upon your shoulder and knight you, a Christian, who gets to rise up and say, nah, he's wrong? We just, we're just not used to thinking about kings. We don't have kings. Guys who say stuff and no one can argue. But that's what Jesus has done. He has said, you are alive, and no one can argue. Who can condemn? He's already died for you. He's already raised for you. He's already at the right hand of God, ruling all things, interceding, that is, praying for you. So what's going to separate you from him? If tribulation comes your way, does that mean he abandoned you? And the answer is no. But then what do you need to take from this, right? You want to expect that in this life you will have tribulation. 
and take heart that Christ has overcome this life. Know that persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, take they are life, goods, fame, child, wife, though these all be gone, as Luther writes, right, in Mighty Fortress. The battle is still won because Christ is risen. So verse 36 is then, I think, the most important verse. It's, it's very much a speed bump because you're reading along in this poetry, right? Shall tribulation or distress, nakedness, danger, sword, as it is written, and it kind of is like a left turn a little bit. For your sake, that's God's sake, we, as Christians, are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What does that mean? It means that Jesus considers you his little lamb to be slaughtered in this life. Because that's all this life is good for. And so he is going to consider you consider you his sheep to be slaughtered for the good of your confidence in the slaughterhouse. Which again is this life. So that even though you know you are scheduled for slaughter at some point, you also know it's not the end of you. Everyone else has to live trying to avoid the slaughter. You instead will get to live confident that the day that it comes, you just become more powerful than you ever were before. You become more righteous in experience, subjectively, than you ever were before. For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, in this we are more than conquerors. I've heard it preached about before, this language of being more than conquerors. What's it mean to be more than a conqueror? And it'd be very easy to think that means you can take your Christian life out there and have everything work the way you want it to. But I think that's the opposite of what it means. To be more than a conqueror means to be able to be conquered and still hold on to your faith. It means to be able to have it taken from you, that is life, and not have it taken from you, that is the real life. Because you've hidden that love, Christ, his truth, inside, where nobody can take it from you. You confess it. You sing it. More than a conqueror. So that again, when that day comes, let's imagine best case scenario. You're, you're late in age. You've had long retirement. You have friends around you because it's just... You know, you kind of have known it's coming. You maybe have gotten weaker and weaker. So you're on hospice. The pastor comes. He, Me or Pastor Cypress, we give you the Lord's Supper. He's on your lips. You say amen, and there you're with Jesus. What if it happens sooner than that? Why would that be better if it happens sooner or worse if it happens sooner? See how, like, we all want to, like, control this faraway death? based on some sort of American dream? What I see in scripture that inspires churches is people who don't care when they're going to die. They're not going to try to die. They just aren't going to be afraid of dying. And that's because they know that God is behind them, that Christ has already died and risen, that you're being called, gathered, enlightened, washed, sanctified, and given the cup of wrath, turned into the cup of blessing, is the certainty to know that whenever this life is stripped away, it won't be gone at all. Whatever pain you think is coming your way during death, whatever that might be, 
it will be an insignificant blip compared to the glory and joy that will be revealed the instant your breath flickers out of the current mortal coil, the tabernacle. And if it is in that moment where from the sky we all see it at one time, you better believe it's going to be like haya and karate kick. You're going to be up in the air and filled with joy. So again, have the discipline to catch that idea that Jesus is coming, that he is risen. Alleluia. And buttress your week with it. Use those ideas to remind yourself that the bad things are going to be used for good because even the bad things are going to point you back to the certainty of Christ. In the name of Jesus, amen.